Welcome to week four of Resources for Dismantling Racism in the Gospel of Mark. My name is Joshua Daniel, and I'm an Episcopal priest at St. Columbus in Washington, D.C. Tonight we're reading Mark chapter four, the longest, quote, sermon, end quote, by Jesus, which heavily borrows from apocalyptic literature and imagery. The sermon is given almost entirely through parables, many of which tie directly into the central themes of the gospel and this class, imagining a new kingdom where the poor and outcasts are restored. Jesus tells his disciples that understanding these parables unlocks all other parables and thus his central teaching in the gospel. And so this chapter acts like a hinge for the rest of the class. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, the last remaining three classes, deal directly with Jesus' mission to dismantle economic and ethnic stratification. So this class, this hinge, is the payoff, um, in my mind, for all the work that we've been doing. So hang in there with me. Thrilled to have you on this journey with us. And now we join the class beginning first with prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the beautiful day today, for cool mornings and warm afternoons, for children in the playground, for choir singing just above us, for your gathered community, willing and eager to open your word. May it inspire and challenge us. May it comfort us. May it reveal itself to be strange and holy and life-changing. May we hear and see the word in one another tonight. May we see and hear the word in the world, especially in those who are cast to the side May we see your Holy Son in them. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> all right. Welcome to all Zoom version. Um, I, I actually, I think this will be easier. Um, so I, uh, feedback is always appreciated, appreciated especially since we're trying out uh, new forms, new mediums all the time. Um, welcome to everybody. I thought I would start today. I'll start. And, um, <laughs> and uh, we, we were like circling the drain last week about like the nature of faith. I felt in like this really profound, energetic, energizing way. And I, I like to start there um, and then uh, and then pause for some questions and some table setting and then dive into uh, Mark chapter four, um, uh, Jesus's sermon of parables uh, um, after that. So uh, if that sounds OK with everybody. OK, so <clears throat> welcome. Uh, fourth week, we. We are at middle middle point. I I also think that um, chapter four is kind of it's both the middle of what our class is doing, but also kind of the middle of um, the narrative uh, structure. Jesus like takes a pause uh, to do a sermon with. Um, well, we'll talk about with who in just a minute. But I wanted to start with faith. I. Uh, been having these kind of conversations with colleagues and friends uh, about faith and and what one way it came up was we were debating about whether people um, pray at home very much and I took the position that yes this happens all the time um, but perhaps perhaps in untraditional ways we pray especially in the context of teaching children uh, faith and passing on faith. I think it happens all the time, but a lot of times in um, indirect ways. I think uh, parents, in part, pass on 
some of the core values about faith when they talk about normal stories of like forgiveness or or conflicts in the office or with neighbors when they see um uh i don't know someone uh jenna or jenna uh, came home with a van full of groceries and somebody had parked right in front of our house so we had to like park down the street and like haul them up and our kids got to see us only slightly grumble about this <laughs> and not slash people's tires anyway so there's like the explicit thing about faith and because we live in this like christianized nation where um christian language has permeated um the 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 full the full uh kid and caboodle it's it's kind of woven into a, a lot of the kind of um highfalutin language in our uh uh, civic uh, social setting um, lots of people go to church it's in movies and media in every direction anyway so the it's the, the kind of explicit language of christianese is is permeated but i also think that we participate in faith by by living holistic lives centered around justice um and so in in that way i think Faith is in homes and being talked about a lot, even if not directly. So I want to present this this slightly uh, um, contrasting idea about what faith is, because I think the word faith, um, the Greek word for faith that is in other parts of the New Testament is not in the Gospel of Mark. And I think Mark allows us, Mark is just one of four Gospels, but Mark allows for a... Uh, a, uh, a a puzzling idea about what faith is. And I, and I want to lean into that for just a minute. So here's the kind of motivating idea. And that is that um, faith is not much different than what is our normal lives. Or to approach it from the other direction, our normal lives are infused with the holy. So our, our, our normal lives of um, gardening and of um, sharing meals with one another and um, forgiving and getting angry and being gracious and being short, all of that is intimately connected into faith. Let me connect that to Mark real quick and then we'll, we'll pause for uh, questions and um, and. Uh, uh, reflections from you all, in, which will make this a much more interesting and um, nuanced discussion. So, what I'm trying to say is to uh, differentiate the way that faith is often talked about. That's one of the themes of this course, is to take concepts that we hear all the time, like sin, and to approach it from a totally different vantage point. Here, I want to do the same thing with faith. So, the kind of common um, common wisdom about what faith is, is to think about faith as involved in this kind of complex theological posturing. We're, we're um, figuring out the inner nature of God, uh, this holy mystery that is um, um, uh, very complicated theological discourse. I want to say that that is not what Mark presents as faith. Mark rejects simplistic accounts of what faith is like. And here's some uh, examples of what I have in mind of Mark uh, really diving into kind of untraditional thoughts and views about what faith is like. So, for instance, and we've talked about a lot of these. Um, when Mark uh, has Jesus talk about the Bible, it, he always does it in very, in, he usually does it in pretty subversive ways. For instance, very beginning, um, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, that that text, see, I'm sending before your face, um, <clears throat> is a, a conflation of two different texts, right? Isaiah and Malachi. Um, Jesus is already in involving the prophets in this uh, uh, setting of the stage for his um, story of redemption. Also, um, Jesus gives a well-known story uh, from the Hebrew Bible, a twist by introducing that David's companions were hungry. 
later on, which we haven't read yet, um, uh, Jesus adds a commandment to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, Moses' Ten Commandments. Um, uh, very intentionally and significantly, what he adds is that you should not defraud people. Um, getting back to the, the economic justice that's so central, I think, to Jesus' message. He also manipulates familiar symbols, um, uh, writing Jerusalem, something else we can talk about later. Um, and also Jesus saying, like we saw last week, that forgiveness is not possible for some people, namely those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and then making um, that person uh, who blasphemes the Holy Spirit his chief disciple, uh, namely Simon Peter. So what I'm trying to suggest is that Mark does not give us a... Um, here's the text, it's just obvious. Um, instead, Mark is critically engaging with the Hebrew Bible and therefore is presenting an example for us to follow. Okay. Let's see here. Oh, no. Okay. I deleted a slide and copied the same one twice. <laughs> Let me see if I can think about what it said. Okay, so what is faith? The, the common wisdom is to think that Jesus proves himself to be the Messiah through uh, miracles or through um, some type of uh, sign or proof that is cosmic and world historical. Um, actually, uh, Mark presents a picture of Jesus that Jesus is confirmed to be the Messiah not because of any great sign not because of, of a miracle or fulfilling um, a prophecy in a kind of magical way rather Jesus Jesus shows himself to be the Messiah um, uh, as all true prophets are shown to be true prophets um Oh, yeah, but not by identifying with miracles or rhetorical mastery, but by their solidarity with the poor and the outcast, their willingness to engage in political institutional conflict. So central is this kind of conflict model, um, conflict for the purpose of protecting disenfranchised people. So central is that that one of the great parables that Jesus gives in his confrontation with uh, the scribes and his family and other institutional powers, he describes himself as a robber, um, as, as it inherently being a criminal, inherent criminality. So I remember last week uh, there was a question about kind of picking and choosing verses that we like and we don't like. So what I'm trying to do here is to pull back and, and look at in a more holistic way. What is the guiding principle? Uh, the guiding principle is not something that's going to allow us uh, a lot of clarity about what has become complex theological questions in like modern um, Christianity. Rather, it's a very straightforward, um, uh, are you standing in solidarity in advocating for the poor? Um, uh, willing to uh, uh, risk everything for that project. Jesus believes that true following, which involves healing and releasing of debt, um, touching the untouchable, will necessarily mean political confrontation. Therefore, what Mark presents is um, a holistic version of a person. So, not something that can, not faith, not as uh, someone who can speak one way on one day, um, speak another on the other, but looking at the kind of holistic nature of their life. And so this question about words versus deeds as a principle of faith is uh, uh, another uh, really interesting defining mark, defining mark of the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is organized around Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission. Journeys, conflicts, these are all action words. The power of the word in Mark is subordinate to that of deed. 
He trained his disciples into practices. Namely, getting them to be around the poor. Not for shaming or rebuke, but often for dinner. Um, which is a type of deep social intimacy. Let's, well, when we get to it, let's, let's, uh, please, please share. Okay. So, all right, Mark chapter four. Um, this week, uh, uh, Jesus teaches. This is Jesus's uh, moment of sermon. There's another one in chapter 13 that's substantially shorter and kind of uh, even more uh, frenzied, I think, in a way. But the, the imagery is more frenzied. Um, but, uh, but this one, um, uh, uh, the setting, and Mark does such a good job about uh, uh, giving us the setting for where these things happen. And the setting here is the sea. And if you'll remember, um, the sea is a place where Jesus calls uh, his disciples, both Simon and Andrew and James and John, and also um, uh, Levi, son of Alphaeus. Also, the sea Mark uses as a place to teach um, uh, in chapter 2 and uh, here in chapter 4 and chapter 3. So Mark carefully sets the scene through um, something that Chad Myers calls, and perhaps others uh, also call it, intertextual stitching, which is like he will open, he'll use a word and then, or, or a phrase or an idea, and then add to it a little bit, and then that kind of sets us up for a major moment. So the sea has popped up a few times. Um, uh, for instance, in Mark uh, 2.13, Jesus went out beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, um, and he cured many there. Those are in Mark 2 and Mark 3. And so here we get to see... Um, kind of a full-length version. So the thing that happens in the ellipses, you know, and Jesus taught them, and then they went somewhere else, we actually get to kind of see what the teaching is. Would somebody like to read uh, uh, this? So this is Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Thank you, Don. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. Such a very la large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat there while the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. He began to teach them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And he said, Let anyone with ears to hear listen. Thank you, Don. Um, that's uh, wonderful. Uh, Barbara asked, uh, how, uh, how common is uh, teaching in parables like this? Um, Patty Wu, did you have a, a sense about that? Um, I would like to say that it indicates uh, kind of where Jesus was aiming, uh, namely to uh, a more peasant uh, audience. Um, but I, I don't know kind of a larger uh, history of literature for parables in first century. Um, okay, great. And so uh, just some kind of, I thought I'd start off with, here we've got um, lots of talk about the, not lots of talk about the apocalypse, but the apocalypse is something I've talked a lot about 
beginning in chapter um, one with uh, 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 Jesus's confrontation and temptation by Satan right after his baptism. Um, it's uh, imagery that's riddled throughout the gospel of Mark. And it's primarily chapter four is um, parabolic uh, teaching, but uh, the kind of apocalyptic imagery is is also riddled. Um, so I just thought I'd like talk kind of briefly about uh, uh, what kind of apocalyptic literature is really quick and see if we uh, can see how Mark uh, will use um, apocalyptic literature to help with the images. Okay. Well, I'll come back to how it's not apocalyptic in, in a minute. But um, so one characteristic of apoc apocalyptic literature is uh, um, putting things into kind of combat terms. Um, Chad Myers use, likes to use the word myth, kind of combat myths. Uh, so I already mentioned the kind of wilderness confrontation with um, Jesus uh, and Satan. Also, so the, the uh, Jesus's uh, wilderness, the... It goes something like this. Um, and the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. And I always read the, like, the wild beast part, and I was like, what's going <laughs> Like, okay, he's, you know, is this like Daniel in the lion's den? Well, sort of. I mean, um, uh, Daniel, the wild beasts uh, uh, that God was able to... Um, the, the lions, for instance, uh, that they are a, a menacing presence that God was able to overcome. Anyway, so Jesus being with the wild beasts is like struggle with Satan um, and the angels helping him out. Anyway, this is apocalyptic uh, imagery. Also, um, the kind of overall overall um, image of uh, the strong man, um, uh, Herod or uh, the temple. Um, the kind of institutional oppression of people versus the strength of Jesus as an alternative kingdom. These are, in apocalyptic literature, um, uh, so often things are put into, into conflict with one another. A great battle. Think of the book of Revelation. Um, and part of the history here is that Mark was, was probably written during um, uh, wide rebellion, if not kind of out, outright war. And so... Um, it kind of lends itself uh, to the writer, I think. Another characteristic of apocalyptic literature is this sense of like a secret revelation, um, a secret that is kept from many. Uh, Patty, this is getting to your point. Um, but interestingly, you know, the thing that Mark does, which makes it such uh, interesting, I think, uh, text, is to continually subvert what, who we expect um, will get it and who we won't. So um, oftentimes the blind are the rich and powerful in the gospel. And the people who are like getting it, at least in the beginning, are common um, fishermen uh, who, who hear the call of Jesus, drop their nets, and follow him. Um, and then later, uh, I think Dwayne brought this up last week, we have blind Bartimaeus, whom I'm, I'm preaching about this Sunday. But secret revelation is a theme of apocalyptic literature in general that Mark uses. Um, another theme of apocalyptic literature in general that Mark uses is that suffering is um, not only something to be not avoided, um, but can lead to redemption or revol revolution. Uh, we don't see a lot of that in chapter four, I don't think, um, but we do see quite a bit of it uh, in Jesus's prediction of his own death, and also his command um, to the disciples, anyone who will follow him to take up their cross, which itself was a, a political remark. Uh, two more, two more kind of general themes on apocalyptic literature. One is um, um, that uh, the apocalypse is about uh, the um, uh, liberation from domination. So in Mark, uh, not just from Roman occupation, um, uh, but more broadly from the domination found in human behavior. So I think it was last Sunday or the Sunday before where um, 
uh, maybe it was last Sunday where the disciples were asking to sit at, at Jesus's right right hand, and Jesus said something like, um, "You know, I'm going to give you power, but you're not going to have power like um, the Gentiles who use their power to lord it over people. Uh, um, that's power to dominate others. So, interestingly." This, this theme of domination works both in a collective sense that the poor as in like systemic terms are oppressed by the rich, but also in kind of what we call more modernist thinking of like um, that uh, as an individual, I can become uh, liberated from a spirit of domination. And so Jesus talks about this as like hard heartedness. Um, so. It's both that the Pharisees are stubborn and also that they are denying the rights of the poor. So it's both a personal failing and also a collective failing of like public policy, to put it in our terms. Um, and then lastly, uh, uh, dualism is another general characteristic of apocalyptic literature. So the old versus the new. Um, we saw this in chapter two with the story about the wine that you wouldn't put old new wine into old wineskins, um, and also uh, kind of insider versus outsider, and that we see uh, very prominently here in chapter four. Um, but again, and then I'm going to take a a, a, a breath uh, to see if there are any questions kind of about apocalyptic literature in general before we look specifically at things. But I just wanted to point out the dualism part. And kind of connect it with the um, what I called the insane uh, the insane verse from chapter three about uh, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness. There's something very similar here in chapter four. Um, we've got the secret language again, uh, characteristic of the apocalypse. And uh, then, well, let me just read this. And he said to them, "To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those on the outside." Everything comes in parables in order that they may indeed look, but not perceive and may indeed listen, but not understand so that they may not turn and be forgiven. <laughs> you know, it's like um, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right. Um, it kind of like they're getting set up for failure. Again, what I what I just love about this text is that um, um Mark ultimately will work to um, not dissolve, but but certainly to put intention these simple dualisms. Um, so, um, what clear? I think Jesus is mostly talking about in chapter four. Um, uh, this is an extension of whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, namely. So, those of you who are opposing. Um, this social movement to include those who have been um, uh, ostracized from society, the poor, um, the deformed, the weak women, um, uh, uh, those who are trying to stop me from this kind of radical inclusion of those people, they are the blind. Um, uh, interestingly, so when we pull back uh, what the kind of simple dualism that Jesus presents in chapter four is just pulverized when it turns out that the disciples are the real blind ones. Um, and so this simplistic insider outsider, the Pharisees are outsiders, were insiders, gets smashed to smithereens when the, um, when the disciples start to rebel in, in chapter eight. Um, It, uh, Katie, your comment about Mary last week had me thinking all week. Um, so I, I last week I put, you know, like I said something like Peter is clearly blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Um, and it was like right there is low hanging fruit. And I just didn't make the connection. I mean, who Jesus is probably most directly talking to is his family. Right. That whole thing is a um, how do you call it? a Markian intercalation, a sandwich where it starts with a story about his family and then he does the parables about the um, binding the strong man and then he goes back to the family. 
And right before he goes back to the families, when he says the thing about blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, and who's there trying to restrain him? His mother <laughs> and his brother and his sisters. And then fast forward to chapter 15, where Mary reappears. And it says that um, the women from Galilee came to serve him. And they use the word diaconist, what we use for deacon. It's, a, it's an honorific term about serving Jesus. So there again, we have like um, Mark really complexifying the sense of insider outsider. It, the family was literally, it says, on the outside. And then fast forward, Mary is the pair, not, not just like um, one of the disciples that Jesus will use, but like a paragon of discipleship. Um, she receives the gospel from the young man dressed in the white robe. Um, so again, a, a, a really complex sense of inside-outside that's, that's always changing. Okay, and, and my last kind of remark here is that uh, Jesus will give, um, anybody who opposes Jesus is given the chance. We see in the narrative a, a chance at redemption. Um, and in many cases, they do find it. Okay, so that's a kind of, that's the class portion of that. And now we're just going to go through the text. But let me just stop and see um, any questions uh, uh, or comments. Joshua. Yes. You just said a lot right there. <laughs> yeah. And he, he was talking to his family? Whoa. Now, what was that, Don? You said he was talking to his family when he said you were blaspheming you won't be forgiven. That, that, that's going to take me a week to, to, to take that one in. Right, right. Yeah, let me just look um, again here. No, I, I get it. I understand what you said. Yeah. It's very logical, but it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have, for, can, can never have forgiveness. Never. And then literally uh, two verses later, next sentence, then his mother and brother came, and yeah. he he refuses to allow them to come inside. I mean, I mean, he kind of did that with the um, I think this is Mark with the um, healing the little girl and healing the lady with the hemorrhages, right? Right. The same like back and forth, and you don't get the whole thing until you read it all. Yes. Right. Yeah. That okay. he starts a story, and then it's like, look, it's my dear, a frog, and yeah. we're off on a rabbit, and then we come back to finish the story. Yep. Yeah. This is sort of my one of my fundamental things with the Bible is parsing through this and sort of taking as literal truth the sequence of like like that his mother was right outside at that particular moment and 50 or 100 years later, the person oh, writing the story right. knew, even in an oral tradition that probably was pretty accurate, that the, right. the mother was outside right then and that that actual yeah. wording actually happened. And he said that about his mother who was standing outside. I just have a really hard time believing it. So right. what I'm loving about this whole class and the whole arc of the narrative is is the overall picture, which I, I think, I mean, I, I, I think is, seems obvious in the, in the big themes, but to have to sort of twist our minds around the meaning of him saying that to his mother, for instance, in that context, in that moment, as if she was standing right outside the house, right when he was having that particular conversation inside, I just maybe, maybe that's exactly what happened, and it survived the oral tradition for you know fifty or hundred years. But maybe not, and then all the translation of, of language for the next two millennia. But maybe it didn't happen exactly that way. Um, yeah, and so that's what I was saying. Sort of saying in my yeah. email to you last week was, so that that too often we 
to give myself permission to just ignore the verses that I don't like. Um, or yeah. that don't fit what I, what the story that I think God is telling me about Jesus. Yeah. Um, and, and I have, because I'm fighting against an evangelical childhood. And yeah. so I, yeah. that's the risk for me. But at the same time, I think there's, there's real risk in trying to shape our worldview of Jesus and and um, and his followers and you know and the historical Jesus around the exact shape and paragraphs and chronology to the minute that's in the book in front of us. Right. You know. Yes. Yeah, and I think Elizabeth, um, that's so great and. Um, I think a perfect alternate telling of what I'm trying to juxtapose a picture of faith to, which is back then, you know, for the, the people that Jesus is encountering, it was proved to us that you are the son of David. Namely, we want to see you have military domination over the occupying forces. That's the sign we're looking for. And so Jesus just refuses the um, the Messiah label when it's offered to him again and again and again. Because what he means by Messiah is not what they mean by Messiah. For us, our own kind of like, I don't want to say idolatry, but our own kind of like yearning is to have it exact. <laughs> and by exact, I mean like NFL replay there are 17 <laughs> there are 17 high definition cameras and we can put it all together you know exact and so I, what i want to say is i i don't want to be dismissive of any effort to try to figure out what happened what didn't happen you know and some scholars have like more or less success some stuff they say like we'll just never know but for jesus i want to say that 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 type of faith is a type of superficial thing, right? Like it's it's involving us into this game, which may or be, may be helpful in some some purposes, but like what clearly what Jesus is trying to get the disciples to do is live differently, <laughs> right? And and that is not going to affect. So this this the exact details of the encounter with the family, right? Like. Um, Maybe we've got those right, maybe we don't. But, like, nevertheless, the, the, the kind of guiding principle of what Jesus is trying to lead us to is about this, like, holistic transformation. Did, did that track kind of what? That, to that totally tracks, and I love that. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, any other, even if we're going in, like, a totally different direction? Yeah, Jan. Oh, you're on mute. Yeah, so the Greek word is pistos that Paul uses, like, for instance, in Corinthians um, and other of his letters. And I think that is also used in the Gospel of John. But I, you know, and here I don't want to have any, I don't want anyone to confuse me with a Greek scholar. I really don't know. I'm pretty sure that um, Mark never uses that Greek word. So, like, faith right um uh and again what's interesting is that you could write a gospel and now gospel is used right the good news of jesus the proclamation um but all of those are action words you know and i want to say something similar about paul's conception of faith but that's like next year or something um but is, is, is that does, is that helpful uh jan Okay. <laughs> uh, so it, it, it being there or not being there, um, is there something that you think kind of like uh, um, that helps or doesn't help or confuses or makes clear? I just thought maybe it would give some insight into Mark's thinking. Yeah. To know 
and I don't speak Greek either. It's all Greek to me. Um, <laughs> right. To know what, how he praised faith, how he viewed it. And yeah. I think what you're saying is he viewed it through parables rather than directly as a, as a word. Right. Yes. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, so in my mind, Jesus, in the beginning of chapter 3, going to the synagogue and saying to the scribes, or to the Pharisees, is it better to save life or to kill on the Sabbath? Right? I mean, that is putting your cards on the table about, do you see faith the same way I do? And it is interesting that he doesn't use the word faith, but like this whole kind of thing about the worship of God. Yeah, Patty. Oh, um, uh, when you, you've been literature in general yeah and so i'm wondering i mean none of us are scholars of ancient texts but right. <laughs> uh, do you mean like the jewish tradition or the literature of that period um, is there a, a body of text that you could describe that we would understand yes so i mean the the two that come most easily to mind is the book of daniel which is in the you know hebrew bible that that jesus would have had access to certainly mark certainly mark um, because he, he kind of directly uh, lifts uh, from, like, for instance, the Son of Man, right, which is just a, something that Mark is always using to, have, to describe Jesus. That is an image that comes from the book of Daniel, um, uh, the Son of Man. And then the other one, which is anachronistic, but is a part of this body of literature, is the book of Revelation, um, also um, apocalyptic, which in itself drew from Daniel, and I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't be able to to give more guesses about which other of the Jewish texts counts as apocalyptic. Probably some in the apocrypha, but yeah, yeah. Thanks, Patty. And um, can I just one little footnote? Yeah, Joshua? yeah. Um, this whole. What I heard you starting to get into is sort of the literary style of Mark. Right. And that's to understand his message. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll probably get an F minus for this, but <laughs> I don't care if it really happened. It, that means absolutely nothing to me. Yeah. What I do is to understand what's the message God is trying to get to us. Right. Yeah. You know, it's um, a really... One way, so I was in a meeting today with Bill Jensen, um, and I can't remember who else was, if anyone else was there, um, about uh, how the church's, St. Columba's interest in becoming an anti-racist church and our ongoing efforts to dismantling racism, how that works in our worship, you know? Um, and the kind of like task force is going through um, every nook and cranny, which is awesome. And I was thrilled to be a part of that conversation. All that to say, you know, there's kind of like several different ways to think about kind of um, looking at things from a multicultural lens. And one is through geography, you know, like how would someone from Central America see this same passage? And we would be enormously blessed, I think, to be in a conversation like that. But another way to think about kind of multiculturalism is through time, you know, and so interestingly, like and this isn't going to surprise anybody, but like these questions about like the exact historicity, like didn't there's no literature from like the first century to the 10th century of of people being racked um, um, about, you know, did X really happen? In fact, a third century theologian um, named Origen um, uh, was totally uh, um, uh, 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 caustic towards people who were asking about whether like anything in Genesis really happened or not. It was like, who would care? You know, it's about the the great spiritual path towards God, you know, which is this very postmodern thing. Anyway, I, I think there's like this great kind of nuanced thing um, about. Uh, so, Don, my only kind of pushback, because what I'm trying to say is I totally agree with you, <laughs> uh, you know, and looking from a multicultural lens, 
like for a thousand years cultures in every direction didn't care about a lot of these questions that should like that neither you know closes the book or opens the book or whatever but it's an interesting data point that i think we should take seriously the, on the other hand um i think that trying to figure out which so much of the chad myers text is doing what life was like for first century palestinians can deeply inform and illuminate our understanding of the text for instance oh okay we've got 20 minutes let me let me let me start making some direct connections to to the text okay um for instance this whole thing um about agrarian culture right so like somebody in the 10th century wouldn't have known much about what it meant to be a farmer in first century palestine <laughs> um but through like a lot of really great um sophisticated scholarly research we know that this image that jesus gives here about the sower um maps very closely with what farming was like for a first century palestinian um and I'm missing the exact term for this type of uh, farming. Um, and I just realized that I don't have it written down. But basically, it was like no, no um, till, no till farming. So they're not like tilling the ground. They're just like casting out seeds um, uh, to see where it grows up. And in, and in that and I'm speaking only of what other people have told me, not from experience or depth of knowledge. But in that type of farming, you're going to lose most of what you sow, right? Um, and so, <laughs> right, that historical picture, I think, is very illuminative of this parable, where um, a whole bunch of the seed just ends up uh, uh, not much being, um, not much coming of it. Um, I also point out, so I had this slide that I want to go back to real quickly about how the gospel of Mark, um, works against the grain for apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic literature. Just real quickly, a couple interesting points is that a whole bunch of the dramatic framework in the gospel of Mark revolves around totally mundane events, sea journeys, land journeys. Um, mothers outside a house saying like, <laughs> like, stop it, you know? Um, and also in these parables, think about how um, relatable these parables would have been to a poor, um, a poor class, uh, to peasants. Um, and of course, there are some like big heavenly moments like the baptism, transfiguration, resurrection, but they're immediately contrasted with Jesus going out to the woods. Um, or going out to the sea to call the, the disciples. And so similarly with this uh, parable, we have Jesus using some apocalyptic um, imagery, but mostly he's just talking about farming. Okay, um, let's see here. Okay, this is, so uh, this is what we have uh, just read. And then this next text here starts at... Um, verse 13, verse 13. So he pulls, well, he doesn't pull the disciples together. It just says, verse 10, when he was alone with them, namely when the disciples could ask questions without embarrassing themselves, <laughs> um, uh, they asked him about the parables, right? Like we didn't get any of that. Um, and Jesus is pretty exasperated, and then he explains it. And then um, I'm going to look through closely uh, the explanation. Oh, first of all, to say Jesus thinks of this parable as a key to understanding basically the whole message, the whole gospel. If you don't understand this, then how can you understand any of the parables? And Jesus mostly teaches in parables. So how could you understand any of my teaching if you don't understand this? Okay, so first example. These are the ones on the path 
where the word is sown, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Okay, so obstacle here is Satan. Um, example is um, Peter, right, whom Jesus calls Satan. And the idea is that they hear the word, and yet there's no corresponding action. The seed lands inert. Next example. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it. So it's not totally inert. Um, it's with joy, right? So there's some change of life. But they have no root and endure only for a while. That means they walk on the path for a little bit. Um, um, and then when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So again, we have to think about the different voices that Mark is using while he's writing. There's the voice of Jesus to his disciples, and then there's the voice of Mark writing to the first century church that is experiencing persecution. To them he's saying, um, he's explaining to them why it's so hard to have a successful organization that promises crucifixion as a great outcome. <laughs> I mean, it's like no doubt. I mean, this is my only complaint about church growth language as being an indicator of health. Um, uh, I, I, I do think that when a church is growing, that's great. Be, you know, we've got this great message. Um, um, we are offering a community of grace and peace. And of course, we want people to hear and know and experience that. Um, but also, uh, um, we're offering something that that's hard. Um, and people walking away from it in, in a way shouldn't rattle us, I think. Okay, so, um, so example, <laughs> everybody. But... <laughs> Uh, everybody who's ever read this, um, um, uh, people who are wanting to avoid persecution, um, but specifically the disciples who flee in the garden in Mark 14, uh, the very real desire to avoid suffering um, as a cause for not following the path of Jesus, a, a perfectly understandable in a way. Okay, next, others um, where the uh, uh, is sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word. Ah, and here's where we, um, here's, I kind of want to stop again, but we don't have time. Um, here's where I, I hope that our careful reading of the first three chapters alerted some of you to um, Mark kind of cooking the books. Um, these are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, and it yields nothing. So the example here, the obstacle is wealth. The example is the rich man in chapter 10. Um, again, notice how closely Jesus ties this major teaching, right? Like, how can you understand anything if you don't understand this, um, to the fundamental question about poverty and wealth, where wealth is always a negativism. And if we think about the kind of progression here. Um, the first one is where the seed lands inert. The second one is the seed takes root for a moment. This one is where like you are like um, uh, really a part of the movement and then you're you're willing to you're <laughs> you're willing to um, uh, uh, endure persecution and torture but you're not willing to give up wealth. <laughs> that is an even harder than, than willing, uh, willingness to endure persecution is the giving up of wealth. It is the chief obstacle um, uh, for those following Jesus. But here, here's the payoff. And so Jan, I'm thinking so much about you because your question really strikes to the core of this. So there... There is like a rich, abundant imagery for all the different obstacles to faith. And I just want to say real quickly about how in contrast that picture and imagery is to so much of popular American Christianity as obstacles to faith, right? Um, 
But here is the, the hope part. And these are the ones sown on the good soil. They hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30 and 60 and 100 fold. Okay, once suffering is accepted and wealth rejected, there is enough for the dignity of all. A hundredfold yield of crops would be enough to break the cycle of poverty. Enough to end what we would call sharecropping and buy the land itself and permanently take people out of poverty is the image that Jesus is giving us. Okay, let's, I, I do want to stop there. So on the one hand, Jan, I want to say, yes, you've hit the nail on the head with how difficult um, what it is that Jesus is asking us to do. On the other hand, that type of radicalness is what Jesus believes will, would actually allow for the kingdom of God to take hold. And here, my intuition, and this is where I want, kind of want to connect it to the dismantling racism um, uh, overarching uh, plot of the course. Again, to think about how um, uh, uh, wealth accumulation has not changed for um, the black community in since 1960, right? even after the passage of civil rights laws and after so much social um, and political advancement for people of color and in specifically the black community, still the wealth gap is basically one, one sixth is what I've, you know, one, one um, metric. And, and to me, it seems like, so how do we fix that? We embrace suffering, right? I mean, I'm not talking about you, Jan, or even St. Columbus. Eventually, I do want to talk about you, Jan, and St. Columbus, and me, you know? But, but as a society, like, if we just kind of depersonalize this and think about American society, like, what is going to correct the wrong of slavery and then a um, 100 years of segregation and Jim Crow and redlining and World War II, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Isn't it Jesus's message of like embracing suffering and giving up this, those of us who have excess wealth, um, if we give it up, could there be like this true image of what Jesus is talking about where like dignity is restored, the cycle of, the cycle of poverty is broken? Let me, Yeah, and that, that's really great. And, and there is like where the um, text could use some nuance because in Jesus' economy in the first century, it's a zero-sum game. If somebody gets more, someone's lost something. And that is not exactly how our economy is set up. Um, but nevertheless, I think like the overall theme, right, of uh, embracing a bit of... Um, but anyway, I, any other thoughts, reflections? Oh, we've got something in the chat here. Um, parables were apparently a common form. Oh, thank you, Gabby. Uh, a, a common form in, in teaching in Judaism. Yes. I wanted to say that, but I also felt like a sham um, because I, I, I intuited that might be right, but I didn't know. Thanks. 
Um, that no-till farming is now supposed to be the best way for the environment. <laughs> okay, for those of you who are, uh, th that wasn't clear, Barbara says that no-till farming is now supposed to be the best way for the environment. I mean, you know, it's like, yes, thank you. Thank you, Barbara. my own experience and my mom got to witness all the awkwardness <laughs> and she she loved me through the whole thing but mom do you remember i can't remember when you and dad were, were going to buy a, like a honda accord or something it was like i think it was used and and i, I saw the price tag and i just lost it you know <laughs> from like a 16 year old you know that like when you have 50 dollars in your bank account and that lasts two months you know, and then you see someone buy a car and you're like, oh, the, um, but, uh, yeah, mom. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, yes, the, uh, at looking at what um, reasonable insurance costs. I mean, uh, living a, anyway, so th there, there are real concerns here. Um, nevertheless, I want to point to this like larger picture that Jesus is painting and in kind of, what I take to be it's 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 very significant uh, relevance. I just want to look at a couple of the other parables um, as we're getting close to time, um, where this kind of hopeful image uh, continues to be um, uh, underlined and reinforced. Uh, okay, so the next parable is the lampstand. Um, it is a lamp brought to be brought in to be put under the bushel basket or under the bed and not on the lampstand. And then Jesus says, for there's nothing hidden. And what I love about this is that what is secret here is not some complicated theological algorithm, us figuring out how to get all the right words out of the mouth of Jesus or in our own mouths. Um, actually, what Jesus is asking for is like super straightforward and simple. Um, but what these parables unveil is the true loyalties of the hearer. That's what's polarizing about them, <laughs> right? That, uh, like Amy said, like, I don't want to give up my stuff. <laughs> and, and specifically for Jesus's context, the Pharisees don't want to give up their power to be the ones who have the, the power to forgive, um, debt. Um, and, um, the Romans don't want to give up their power of, uh, domination, um, okay, here's a couple, couple more things that I think are really great. The scattered seed, um, they, the seed would grow and sprout, but the, the, the planter does not know how, um, here Jesus is giving, this is not pie in the sky. Jesus is not, um, detaching himself from the 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 marketplace he, he's not in the scene he's not going out to the wilderness he's not giving up in society he is telling his disciples to have patience and to have hope that there will be setbacks that this is not going to be immediate um and if it happens there can be a regression right it's something that um, um each generation has to ask itself and, and renew um so this I think this parable really gives this beautiful image of patience and hope um, and speaks against a kind of a quote unquote cynical realism that, you know, nothing's ever going to change. Okay. Joshua? Yes. So when I took sacred ground with Patty and Bill, one of the ladies in the course said that one of the reasons she was taking the course is because her daughter said, Mom, I'm not going to keep talking to you about this unless you get a little more educated mm. and we can have a conversation. So going back to Jesus speaking to his mother, 
And your other question about why is the black community still at the same level economically as it was in 1960? Yeah. Um, those kind of tie together. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Don. Yeah. Yes. So the secret here, the secret is not um, what is the means to this, the, the solution of this? It's kind of like right there in front of us. Um, the, the difficulty is, is the individual and the collective will to bring it about. Um, I think. Okay, I've got this great to be continued line. Let me get to it, and then we'll and then we'll stop. Um, so we didn't get to the parable about the mustard seed, um, but a, another another great hopeful image, um, a revolutionary image in a lot of ways. But here at the end, we get to the verse that we've already talked about in uh, great detail. With many such parables, he spoke the to, spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. Um, he did not speak to them except in parables. But he explained everything to, in private to disciples. Not that that helped. They still didn't understand. And then, um, it's not the last verse of the chapter, but it's the last verse before it transitions. It says, on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go to the other side. Let us go to the other side. Namely, um, let's take this radical movement to the Gentiles. Let's get off the um let's get off our hebrew butts and let's go take it to the outsiders uh, to the other outsiders and thus uh, begins and they'll go back and forth it's not gentile only from here on out but here we get just a, another one of the pretexts for this course um, we get some radical teachings about um uh uh, uh, uh ethnic inclusion uh into the into the kingdom of God. So guys, I know this is like week four <laughs> and uh, I just thank, thank you uh, for being here. And for those of you who missed some, or this is your last one, I totally understand. But like, we are really getting to the good stuff. <laughs> I truly believe that. Um, so uh, thank you. A any, any closing words? The Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. Holy God, to this beautiful night we go. Send us in peace. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Until next time. That concludes the lecture portion of today's podcast. If you'd like to hear some of the discussion between me and the class, please stay tuned for the second part of this week's podcast in the separate Q&A file. So thrilled that you've made it to the end, and I truly hope and pray that this series deepens and challenges your sense of who Jesus is and what Jesus is calling us to do. Peace.